Let's, uh, let's jump into our next session. Hopefully that was uh, been a helpful morning so far. Good time worshiping, thinking, praying together. Uh, hopefully it's given you some categories to think through. Over this next session, I want to talk about just the issue of addictions, um, how to have a good biblical understanding of addiction, and how as churches we should respond to addictions. You should all, I'm, I'm quite aware, if you're doing ministry in a rural community, we'll run into this issue again and again and again. A mother calls you late at night because she's at the end of herself. Her son is hooked on heroin. His life has been spiraling out of control. She feels powerless, angry, and terribly sad. If you're in ministry, more than likely you've received a phone call from a mother just like that. Uh, or if you've maybe know someone just like that. No matter where you are in a small town or in a rural community, someone close to you is dealing with an addiction. Someone in your church is dealing with an addiction. Someone is living with an addict or is an addict. If you're anything like me, then when that phone call comes, maybe you feel unprepared. You don't know how to respond, how to help. So this is one of the biggest issues in rural ministry, and most rural pastors just have no training on this. Have, uh, we, we do a great job of just saying, okay, I'll find someone to help you. You know, I'll see if I can find a good resource to put you in touch with. Let me give you some uh, recommended books to, to read. One is a book by Ed Welch called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. It's a really helpful resource. Ed Welch has also written a book called uh, Blame It on the Brain. And then there's a step-by-step guide um, called Crossroads, which is the book, the book that we use in some of our addiction ministries, Crossroads. It's a step, step-by-step guide away from addictions. A lot of that just come from um, uh, ACBC and some of their counseling resources. But if we're honest, most pastors, most churches have no clue what to do with a drug addict. And we have no clue what to do with someone who's suffering from a very real addiction. They just hope that the doctor is going to prescribe some good medication for them, or maybe they'll go to a counselor to get help, or we'll just send them to the AA meeting or the um, NAA meeting down the street. The statistics on this subject are discouraging, to say the least, in my town and in Kentucky. Um, in recent years, my community has been struck by a surge in meth and opiates and heroin addictions, much like most of rural America. By far, the most persistent addiction in our community is and has always been, for the most part, an addiction to alcohol. In any given year, 25,000 people in Kentucky are admitted to a residential rehab facility. Almost a third of those admitted are hooked on prescribed medications, with alcohol running a close second. This is just a snapshot of my community, but chances are most of your communities that would be true for you as well. And my experience has been that many churches do not have a clear understanding of what addiction is or how we are to respond. Is addiction a disease? Is it genetic? Can someone who's never been an addict help someone who is an addict? According to a a poll recently conducted in 2018, 70% of adults in Kentucky 
believe that addiction is a disease. It needs to be treated by doctors, by medical professionals. The National Institute on Drug Abuse defines addiction as this, a chronic relapsing brain disease. Are they right? That's what the National Institute on Drug Abuse defines. That's what the government defines addiction as, a chronic relapsing brain disease. There's a lot of confusion about what addiction is. Is it a psychological disorder? You know, the issue of addiction being a disease, it's the, the thinking behind that is so widespread that in the medical profession, it's taken as gospel that many people working in our areas, including churches, just accept that. that it's a disease and it needs to be treated medically. The problem is, is if it's a disease or an illness, then the solution to it is going to look very different than what I believe the Bible prescribes. See, the Bible says a lot about addiction. And it does use the language of disease and illness in some ways, but it uses the language of disease and illness when it's talking about the symptoms of addiction rather than the causes of addiction. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 1 verse 5 says, Your whole head is injured, your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Describing one who is addicted. The Bible clearly says that sin, though, has many things in common with disease. And so it's easy to conflate the two. Sin affects the entire body. It affects who we are. It often is painful. It leads to death. But the Bible also uses other languages to describe addiction. And we've got to take the Bible as our starting place. The Bible is the authority on this matter, regardless of what others might say. So consider this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. I think one of the clearest texts on helping us understand the nature of addiction. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Well, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterous, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God. See how in that uh, passage there, Paul clearly identifies, he lumps, he includes addiction with a whole host of issues uh, that are endemic in society that many are prone towards. But the solution, the key here is verse 11. Such were some of you. You were addicted to much alcohol, drunkards. Such were one of you. What changed? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what is addiction? Let me give you some 
biblical categories to help us understand addiction. First, addiction is sin. Addiction is a pattern of sinful, a sinful pattern of behavior. Like the adult, the alcoholic is listed alongside the thief and the adulterer. Paul understands drunkenness to be a sin. Therefore, an alcoholic is in sin. Now, that is not to say that alcoholism does not lead to disease. It does. And maybe some are predisposed to it. We're not denying that. Maybe there are some genetic elements or environmental elements to it. We're talking about the root of it. The root of alcoholism is a sin. An addict may well need medical attention in order to get treatment for the effects of their addiction. Yeah, it is root. All addiction, all addiction begins as a sinful choice. All addiction begins as a sinful choice that is ultimately destructive. An addict needs to first take responsibility for their sinful behavior, or they'll never find freedom. But there's good news. If addiction is a sin, then the addict has hope. If addiction is a sin, then every addict has hope. Hope, because Paul says, verse 11, such were some of you. That's good news for the addict. Some would say we'd call sin addiction a sin. It seems so cruel, so harsh, so unloving, so unkind. Maybe you don't understand all the, all the challenges that people are faced. But no, this is good news. Such were some of you, for you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, set free by the Lord Jesus Christ and the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctified, justified. So addiction might lead to disease, but it never starts as a disease. You do not pick up an addiction like you pick up a virus. Addictions start with a conscious choice that ultimately takes you along a self-destructive path that becomes absolute slavery. And that slavery is a slavery to sin. Whether it's being hooked on pornography or meth, it leads to a breakdown in our relationship with our own body, our own family, and God himself. Listen to how Martin Luther speaks of slavery, this kind of slavery in this book, The Bondage of the Will. That's what he says, and just think it in the context of addiction. We believe that Satan is the prince of this world, ever ensnaring and opposing the kingdom of Christ with all his strength, and that he does not let his prisoners go unless he is driven out by the power of the divine spirit of God. You hear that? We believe that Satan is the prince of this world. He is ensnaring, opposing the kingdom of Christ with all his strength. And he doesn't let his prisoners go. Addicts are prisoners to sin. Luther goes on, he says, man does not do evil against his own will. Under pressure, as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it like a thief, being dragged off against his will to punishment? No, he does it spontaneously, voluntarily. And this willingness of volition is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate or alter. If addiction is at its root a sinful choice, that becomes slavery to sin, then the addict is not simply a victim of his upbringing or his genetics 
or his environment. Ultimately, he bears responsibility before a holy God. Ed Welch says, addiction is both slavery to be pitied and yet a willful rebellion. Addiction is both a slavery to be pitied and yet a willful rebellion. Again, if this is true, then there is good news for every addict. He looks at the drunkard and he says, but such were you. Every addict can find hope in Jesus. If we repent of our sins, turn to Jesus as our Lord, then we can receive his grace and his power by the divine Holy Spirit to overcome every chain that holds us in bondage. If addiction were a disease, then we're nothing but helpless victims. If addiction is just a disease, we are helpless victims. But if addiction is sin, we are promised in Christ we can be more than conquerors. He alone offers the power to cast off sin. So the first category for addiction you have to understand is that addiction is sin. Second category, addiction is idolatry. It is an idolatrous relationship with something, something that is created. Simply put, an addict is worshiping a created thing rather than the creator himself. Who will you worship? That's the question you should be asking the addict. It's a question that the Bible constantly asks. The Old Testament consists of God constantly calling his people, asking the question, who will you worship? Ten Commandments focuses on the issue of idolatry. The greatest commandment is not to have any other gods before the one true God. Deuteronomy 5.7, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's important to remember that idols in the Old Testament were not just about bowing down to statues. Idols and idolatry was a deliberately deliberate conscious decision to move away from the worship of the one true God and to put worship towards something that is made, that is created, that is inferior. First John 5.21 says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. First John 2.15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. See how John is concerned about the, the hidden idols of the heart, not physical ones made by hands. See, the Old Testament is talking about these idols that are made, but the New Testament talks about idols in our hearts. It drives our affections and our, drives our passion and our lusts and our desires. Idolatry is anything we worship other than God himself. It's about what we set our affections on. It's about the lusts of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. So an idolater may well worship Buddha or any kind of little statue they make for themselves. But an idolater can also worship pornography. That bottle of whiskey. An idolater can worship power, control, money, gambling, 
control and freedom from pain. The problem is not the things around us. It's an issue of worship. Who do you worship? The point of idolatry is that the thing that we worship makes the person feel good or powerful or free. We drink because it's fun at first. It's an escape from our boring lives. We maybe start taking drugs to forget a painful situation or to help us escape pain that we're in. We self-harm. We watch pornography. It starts off as enjoyable. We've created something we think we're in control of. But like all idolatry, we soon lose control. The thing we used to be in charge of now takes charge of us. It doesn't feel good anymore. So we do more of whatever it is that is controlling us to get that good feeling back. We start chasing as a game. It gave us that high and then we go back for that high and it doesn't give it to us. And so we keep going and looking at the same pit for the same high that it once gave us. Before too long, that thing that we once turned to for pleasure now dominates us. Controls us like it's a god. We become the slave of our idol. It's no longer about pleasure. It's simply about living. I need it just to get through the day. I need it just to get up in the morning. To get out of bed. The problem with idols is that they don't cooperate with us. Rather than us mastering our idols, our idols master us. Why do these idols have such power over us? Because it's the prince of darkness who has blinded us to truth. Ephesians 6 verse 2, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood or alcohol or drugs or pornography. Our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Addiction is idolatry. But not all addictions are equal. You see, there is a difference between a person who's addicted to alcohol and one who's addicted to just going to work. There's a difference between someone addicted to drugs and someone who's addicted to power. Some idols specifically hook our bodily passions and our bodily desires. And this group of addictions include drugs, alcohol, sexual sin, food. It it then changes our, our chemistry. These idolatries provide such physical pleasure. They relieve physical tension. They soothe our physical desires. It becomes impossible to resist. Satan loves. Satan loves to change our desires by promising us pleasure. He loves the physical pull that these kind of addictions can have on us. He turns our pursuit into pleasure, into a trap. He does it every time. It's always the game he plays. It's the oldest trick in the book. He sets traps all around us. It makes the addict feel deep joy. You see, for that heroin addict, son of the mother who called me, heroin is his God. It becomes a supreme being, a higher power. He is the servant of the drug. He follows its every commandment. The drug is the definition of happiness and gives the meaning of love. Every shot of heroin 
in his veins is a shot of divine love. And it makes the addict feel deep joy and he praises his God. What I'm describing is a biblical definition. It's a spiritual reality. All addicts are blind. No addict would come to you and say, I have a problem with idolatry. No. All sinners are blind to the truth of God's word. The addict doesn't see their idolatry. That's why, again, we need to, Lord Jesus Christ, to break people's addictions. No amount of screaming or threatening or yelling will change an addict's heart. That mother pleads with her son. says, don't you love me? Why don't you listen to me? Stop it. She doesn't understand why they can't just stop it. Why they always go back there. So they would say, it's the drug or me. And the addict says, don't make me choose. But they will always choose the one that has control over them. And yet the Bible says, you'll have no other gods before me. See, addicts are controlled by it as if they're its subjects. So to say that addiction is just a disease, it's false because an idol is something we create to serve us. And yet an idol is something we manipulate for our own selfish desires until it enslaves us and controls our lives. But such were some of you. Idolatry can be broken. If we change who we worship, what we worship. Addiction is sinful. Addiction is idolatry. Number three, addiction is adultery. It's about what we love. Adultery. Proverbs 7, verse 6. Proverbs 7 paints this picture, doesn't it, of a young man being seduced by a prostitute. It demonstrates to us how he has been sucked in by his own foolish, sinful desires. And Proverbs 7, actually Proverbs is a really helpful book uh, when we're dealing with addictions, it gives us really helpful categories. But Proverbs 7 in particular uses the language of adultery. Right? That he's just walking in night. He sees, in the, he sees this woman in the side of his eyes. He's being drawn to it, seduced by it. And the father is, is speaking to him, why would you go there? Why would you go there? But he goes there. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. That sense of being controlled, being dominated by a lust for another. He believes her lies. The seducer always tells lies. The addict is seduced by another lover. He says, I will please you if you love me. Listen to an addict. My wife said to me that I was going to have to make a choice, either cocaine or her. Before she finished the sentence, I knew what was coming. So I told her to think carefully about what she was going to say. It was clear to me that there wasn't a choice. I love my wife, but I'm not going to choose anything over cocaine. It is sick. I know it's sick, but that's what, what it's come to. Nothing and nobody comes before my drug. He's given his heart to another lover. Utterly seduced by it. Proverbs 7, again, this tale of this young man starts innocently enough. He's just walking along the street. However, there is intention in his footsteps. He goes to the street where he knows she'll be. He purposely goes to the street corner where she stands. He goes at dusk where he knows she will be out. 
and she talks sweetly to him and beckons him. The addict goes where he knows the seducer will be. He goes in secret under the cover of darkness, but eventually it will be exposed. With addiction always comes deception. Addiction always includes deception. And addiction always includes unfaithfulness. The destructive relationship with the substance, it becomes their life. Why? You say, why? Why would you do that? But sin is never rational. There are no rational explanations. It doesn't make sense. And sin never looks into the future. It just looks into the moment. See, they're destroying their life. Why would they keep going back there? Why would they keep drinking from that bottle? Why? When they know it's how much it's destroying their marriage or their home or their children. It never considers the future. It never considers the consequence. All it knows is, I want more. And when the seducer calls, he goes to his lover. So we can see that addiction is complicated. But the Bible is clear and really helpful. Addiction is, it leads to diseases. Addiction certainly leads to diseases that needs doctors to help. Absolutely. But at its root, addiction is a matter of the heart. The sinful choice to worship an idol and to give your love to it and declare faithfulness to it. So how do we help an addict? Those are categories to help us understand what addiction is. But how then should we help an addict? I'll give you just a few principles, eight principles again, to think through how to help somebody who's trapped in addiction. Number one, know that addiction is a choice. Don't blame anybody else. It's easy to want to blame others, and there are certainly other contributing factors. Absolutely. But understand, at its root, addiction is a choice. And addiction is something that somewhere along the line we choose. It's not one day a person is walking along and then suddenly falls onto a needle full of heroin. He chose to inject himself that first time with heroin. There may have been pressures. There may have been insurmountable pressure to do so. But at its root, there was a choice, a decision that was made. A sin is always a choice, a purposeful, purposeful self-conscious choice. Even with all the associated misery, people stay with their addictions on some level because their addiction does something for them. It serves them. For the addict, slavery with the object of desire is something preferable to freedom without it. So if we blame others for our addictions, all that will do is make you more bitter, more angry, feel more defeated, feel more out of control. just drives you even further into your addiction. If you begin to own the addiction, you begin to recognize it was a choice, it is a choice, then all of a sudden you begin to walk a path that leads to freedom. You see, freedom over sin always begins with acknowledging that we're sinners, responsible for a holy God. People need to take responsibility. We're not saying don't emphasize, absolutely emphasize. 
empathize with people. Speak with words of compassion and empathy and gentleness towards people. But don't do that at the expense of excusing what is ultimately a sinful pattern of behavior. Number two, know that the problem that an addict faces are serious, but yet ultimately common to everyone. So the problems that an addict is facing, they're serious problems, but what's behind them is actually a very common struggle that we all face. At heart, we are all addicts. You may have never shot up from the veins with heroin. You may have never smoked. You may have never been hooked on alcohol. You're still an addict. Every one of us in this room is addicted to something. There are pleasures we pursue. There are things that we give ourselves over to. It may not be drink and drugs. It may be money. It may be sex. It may be power. We make an idol out of our job, out of our families. We have those respectable addictions that seems like the world celebrates, accepts, approves of. There are still addictions in our lives that often take hold of us. That's why we need to repent of our own judgmentalism. We need to repent of our judgmental attitude towards addicts because we're all addicts and we're all one decision away from being trapped in a very real addiction. So we need to be patient. Keep pointing people towards the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember that, yes, the problem this addict is facing, it is serious. But it's a problem that is common to all of us. Third, we need to show people the seriousness of the problem. So not just the the fact that it's a common problem. We all have this propensity towards addiction. So we need to repent and rebuke of our judgmentalism. But third, we still need to point out the seriousness of the problem. We need to hold out, hold out hope of the gospel. But at the same time, also, hold out the reality of the consequences of continuing to follow a path that will ultimately destroy you, them and many people around them. But if addiction is sin, then there is a cure. It's Christ. And when we come to Jesus, we can be helped completely if we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to follow him, to worship him, to love him, to pursue him. So we need to be aware of the seriousness of the problem, but also point to the hope that we have. Number four, but don't make false promises to the addict. Sometimes we do this really quickly, don't we? We almost deny the fact of how difficult the road ahead is going to be. But an addict who's trying to overcome a very real addiction, there is a path ahead of them, but it's a painful path. There's a journey ahead of them, but it is a difficult journey. Change is a process. Every problem doesn't go away overnight. But it is as we make good choices in response to the Spirit's work in our life that we will change. We won't reach perfection until we meet Christ. So before that happens, our walk of the Lord is a constant battle against sin and our addictions. That's why it's so harmful to call addiction a demon. I'll just come here and we'll pray this demon out of you. So harmful because it, 
It denies, number one, the response, human responsibility for that sinful behavior. And secondly, it assumes that there is an instantaneous response, an instantaneous healing or recovery. Now, some addicts that I'm, I'm, I know if, can actually overcome their addiction quite quickly. But it doesn't mean that they won't spend the rest of their life still battling. There's still a battle ahead of them. Some addicts take years to overcome an addiction. Slowly by slowly, they make little incremental moves away from it. So we need, to be, we need to make sure we don't make false promises. The battle does get easier, but it's still going to be a battle. It's going to be a struggle. Number five, we need to pray for discernment. Pray for discernment. You see, the reality is most serious drug users, alcoholics, gamblers are prolific liars. All addiction involves deception. They know how to lie to survive. They know how to hide in the shadows. So pray for discernment. You know, they can learn the Christian language that they want you to hear very quickly. In doing so, they give us false hope and false assurance. Look how well they're doing. We believe sometimes that they're further along than they actually are. So be weary. You know, when people live a life of deceit and hiding and self-justification, it takes a long time to learn new ways of living. We must be careful that our discipleship does not become merely about moralism, behavior modification. Stop doing that, start doing this. There's certainly a truth in that, but that's not the goal. Stop worshiping that. Start worshiping this. That's a life. That's, that's who we are. People need to be transformed by the gospel, not by association with us and our rules. Some of the addicts, often, some that I've met, they think, if I just come to church and hang around Christians, I'll be okay. I'll just change my circle of friends. We need to be discerning. But also we need to be okay with failure. Addicts are going to, be stumble, are going to stumble along the way. They're going to fall back into their sin or more often than that, what I see is they'll exchange one addiction for another. Often what I see, and I think you'll see it too, particularly with young men who are addicted to drugs, they're able to overcome the drugs, but they go, but they can't overcome, uh, uh, they cannot overcome a hypersexualized lifestyle. And often the drugs fueled it, and they can stop the drugs, but they can't stop the other. So you think, oh, they've overcome the drugs. They've managed to defeat it. But then they pour themselves more into their other addictions that seem perhaps more acceptable to them, less destructive. We need to be discerning. We need to be discerning. Ask the right questions. Number six, build a culture of grace. Build a culture of grace, which means we Celebrate what God is doing, not what the addict is doing. Celebrate what God is changing, not what the addict is changing. Build a culture of grace where we acknowledge the extraordinary work of the Lord who is opening blind eyes, who is changing hearts. And when we stumble along the way, we mess up, which we all do, we keep pointing them back to the grace that is still available. 
Come back to grace. Build a culture of grace. So what are you celebrating when you walk in the addict? Are you celebrating the victory over alcohol? Or are you celebrating God's grace in their life? Celebrate grace. Speak more of grace than you do of the drug. Number seven, we need to be exhorting people to practice self-control. That's the key. We need to be leading people to a life of self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Be sober-minded, live in a life of self-control. Self-control, though, is not for the faint-hearted. It's difficult. And you know that, too. We all know that. A self-controlled life is not an easy life. But being a Christian means that we have to make good decisions, wise decisions, that God, by His Spirit, grants us the ability to make good decisions day by day. As we spend our time in His Word and in prayer around other believers, but we begin practicing self-control. Maybe it's easy for you to say no to cocaine. Maybe it's easy for you to say no to alcohol. Maybe... It's not so easy to say no to that second helping of pie. We all have to practice some self-control in our lives. But we struggle with it. Maybe it's not easy to say no to that car that's going to put you in more debt than you need to be in. Maybe it's not so easy to say no to that credit card that's going to have a level of control over you that it shouldn't have. Look. The Christian life is one of self-control. Self-control comes from wisdom and grace. And so we walk in wisdom and grace, and we try to pursue a life of sober-mindedness and self-control. In that sense, all of us are on the same journey. We're walking it every day. And so, yeah, we walk alongside an addict, but we're not just saying, hey, you need to practice these 12 steps to overcome your addiction. We say, no, no, we're going to walk every step with self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, number eight, we need to persevere. There is grace for every battle, but this is a battle. We need to persevere. And if we're helping the addict, it means you're going to be committed to the long term. You need to be constantly persevering, checking in with them, praying for them, loving them, caring for them. Not just, just celebrate the small wins and the big wins, yes, but also recognize that every day is a battle. Every day we've got to overcome a battle of temptation and sin. So we need to be willing to stay in it for the long term. We need to remember that and run to his grace every day. We all do. And that's why the best place for that son of that mother is in a local church. Not in a self-help group. Not necessarily even in a facility or a doctor's office, although it may start there. It may start in a rehab facility, and it may start at a doctor's office, and it may start at a 12-step program, but it should never end there. It should end in meaningful relationships with other believers who are living this same journey. We're all sinners. We all struggle with idolatry. We all love things we should not love. We're all learning to live in a culture of grace, to daily live with self-control. So a healthy church is no doubt the most suitable place for an addict to find freedom. True and lasting healing comes from walking in faithful obedience to Jesus in the context of a healthy, loving, grace-saturated Christian relationships and accountability.
If we want to minister to an addict, then we must be prepared to walk with him through the battlefields that lie ahead. Yes, Jesus offers hope and freedom, but to live in that freedom can take prolonged warfare against the flesh. To stand strong in that battle, we need to keep our eyes focused on the prize. And the prize isn't the defeat of the drug. The prize is Jesus. So keep our eyes focused on the prize and daily take up the armor of God and stand shoulder to shoulders with other men and women who are fighting a battle every day against the flesh and the lust of the eyes. So when their mother, mother does call you and she's distraught, point her to the prize. Point her again to Jesus. The road ahead for her might not be easy. She'll need the church more than ever before. Begin to put in a plan of action that will see you coming alongside her son in order to lead him to a life of faith and repentance. Working with an addict isn't a sprint. It's a marathon to be done together. Ready yourself for the long fight, but never forget that ultimately, this isn't our battle. For such were some of you, But now you've been washed and cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the divine spirit of God. In him, we're more than conquerors. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, so many of us listening to this no doubt have emotions or feelings that we're feeling right now that might even be troubling us. Maybe there are those in this room that are have battled with or are still battling with a very real addiction that has a hold of them. But I pray that they would know your love and your grace and would continue to walk in a manner that is worthy of you and in pursuit of you. I pray that our churches might model this to each other. But I pray that our churches may not be places where we shun or cast out or hand over the addict to somebody else to deal with. But rather, our churches would be about men and women fighting each day to be wise, discerning, self-controlled, running the race set before us, trusting that in Christ we are more than conquerors. Thank you, Lord, for the work of the power of the Spirit of God at work within us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.